Okay, welcome everybody uh, to the our uh, first uh, Michigan Economic Update General Membership Meeting. Uh, Bob Trezais, President and CEO of the Lansing Economic Area Partnership, lead. Thank you. 
to private jobs and a few thousand jobs retained, but we don't count as his team company formations, which is really the big arrow pointing toward existing uh, fairly significant needs for our region on the pollution number. So breaking news for you, yesterday the milk institute, which is a very credible big institute out of California for years, decades, they annually do obviously uh, up, uh, steps forward in that area as well. But on the other side, we always want to you know learn as much as we can from all of these. Um, you know, I think this is a societal issue, and I'm not sure what the total answers are here. But despite all that good news, our wage growth ranking is slightly decreasing. And so, um, you know, we want to try to create a lot of jobs, but actually with some of our elite preliminary achievements that we've tried to put together to build our regional, this is an amazing event. Sweet this year was our largest ever meeting. We have secrets from Nimitz's idea. They set up a meeting from the Ramsey Center. We have $20,000 sponsorship donations from private companies. Just a heck. If you ever want to be inspired in the near future, this public event is an excellent photo. Well, our little secret meeting um, had no equity investment fund in the year that, of course, Grand Rapids did. And you see here the good facts that we've investigated, the one that suggests that we're uh, one that we're growing in the near future. And Steve is happy to know more about that as we talk about everything else that he has done. We stay here in the region of the state. We come here from around the world and stay, and therefore we'll have a better labor market for our companies. And that is all that we would suggest to you through your newly uh, appointed uh, ambassador badges that you're all going to wear here this day. His last year, well, 2016, because everything's sort of a year behind your measurements, but your GDP growth, it's in East Lansing, MSA, again, that's the Union County area, we finished 18 um, out of 210. We finished fourth in the Midwest for best places for college graduates to do scientific study and uh, and measure affordable um, living in a country region that have population growth. We're largely Indian land, and one of those regions that has been sparrowed in Herbert Herman, and that's what Senator Spokesman is getting at, is we really need to expand states to agricultural development. If you already have a nice business, your state has the largest African-American freshman class in any region of school. Uh, this year, and that's the community college. This year, we're ranked the number one community college in the state of Michigan. And so many of these projects that are going to be built over the next 18 months that raise the most revenue that we can make in any state of Michigan are going to be here. And what's going to happen? I suddenly realize because I'm all bullish, you know. But, uh, you know, I just, it's always an opportunity just for us to think about, you know, and be very honest about our assessment. Tim Poxon. Tim, we have one question for you. Our next speaker, we're going to stay right on track here. Uh, Janet Lilly, she's the Assistant Vice President for Community Relations, Office of, Office of Governmental Affairs for Michigan State University. some of what you know, but you might also learn some things 
minister uh, to various groups across the region. I know some of you have seen this, but uh, let's get started and, and I'll show you where our students live across the region. Uh, first of all, this is a relatively new data set that we have. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only university that's actually working to really pinpoint where, our, where students live off campus. Um, from a historical standpoint, as universities have adopted more technology, that's how we communicate with students. And so we don't really keep track of local addresses. We keep track of a permanent address because that's where you send the diploma months after graduation. Um, and then we have an electronic address that we use to communicate with students. So there was a little bit of working internally to say, hey, we actually really do need to know for a host of reasons where our students live locally. Um, so it took us uh, some time to do that, but this is the second of a five-year data plan, um, data collection plan that I'm going to show you. And we work directly with our registrar's office to get the um, local addresses that students have indicated is, is uh, where they live. We pull in November for the dates you'll be looking at is from November of 2016. We have just pulled the 2017 data and the maps and slides for data two years does not give you enough time to draw trends or anything, but we are using it to ask more questions about how we can fine tune the information that we have. And I do think you'll find that a lot of what you see today will actually be things that we should ask ourselves um, as we work more as a region and as we work more in our own fields as a region. It allows for us to inform some conversations. So total MSU students from the data poll in 2016 was uh, slightly over 50,000. Now many people think they all live right here. Guess what? They don't. They live, we have 16,000 who live on campus, um, drive through campus, that's very, very obvious. We have over 34,000 who live to, but guess what? Upwards to 10,000 don't live in the area. They are doing internships, they are doing residencies, they are in online classes. They are throughout wherever. They could be overseas and be doing online classes, um, online programs overseas. So for the most part, we probably have a little over 40,000 living in the area. A lot of people come in and see the data trends of MSU and they assume that we're just gonna grow, grow, grow like Arizona State with the you know, a goal of having 120,000 students. No, 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 probably not. Um, now, I know you are all very familiar with the region, but I wanted to share this slide first because when I share the next slide, it's a very not nice juxtaposition of the area. So kind of get your benchmark with the, uh, the roads and so forth, the highway systems. This, just to give you a sense, this box right here is Ingham County. So it's a pretty wide bird's eye view of the area. And here's where our students live all across it. Yes, high density around campus, that makes sense. But then there's interesting pockets, and um, as you can see in the northern, we call it the northern tier. We'll drill down to that data a little bit. That's up in Bath Township in the northern part of East Lansing. Certainly Meridian Township um, has a, um, students living over there. And then south, in terms of south of campus, in terms of Lansing, and then in terms of the east side of Lansing, we are seeing students live over there as well. In five years, when I do the five-year data plan, I'll be able to show you what the trend is right now. I'm not drawing any trend information, but usually it's that folks are across 
someone, very much so, maybe it's yourself enrolled in a program. You are a full-time employee someplace or a part-time employee someplace, and you have lived in the area for a number of years and you're enrolled in a program, guess what? We still count you as one of our students. And so those dots might reflect that. They also might reflect a freshman living at home. You know, so we don't know, and we're not looking necessarily to figure out every single data point. We're just looking for the critical mass of, of where folks are and where they're going. Of those students living off campus, clearly East Lansing has the majority of them at, thir at 13,000. So of the little over 40,000 living in the area, East Lansing, um, the city of East Lansing off campus has about 13,000. But Meridian's next.
and um, but we've also had a change in our um, national environment in terms of that. And then you add to the mix, there's more supply, if you will, of programs. It's harder to recruit international students. And what does that mean? What does that mean for, um, in some cases, uh, the local economy? What does that mean for uh, business development? What does that mean for the culture of the area, et cetera, et cetera? It's something that many universities, especially large ones like MSU, have seen in the last 10 years a major uptick in that has impacted the region in many, many ways. And it's something to think about moving forward as, as a variety of factors change um, in that environment. So just something to think about. And, and some of the local developments that we've seen have even targeted, been targeted at specific, consider their advertising and so forth at specific um, cultures and, um, and so forth. So what does that mean across the region um, as the climate is, is changing? Uh, the eastern tier, which is um, in Meridian Township, uh, just east of um, Hagenorn Road, we have almost 3,000 students living there alone. It's a mix of undergrad and professional students. So one of the things about this is with its proximity towards, or proximity next to the medical colleges, uh, some of the professional students studying those disciplines find that this is a, um, a very convenient place to live. They literally just have to walk across Hagenorn, which is very dangerous. But if they can survive that, then they are close to their, um, their classes. So this, quite frankly, is the area that over the next couple of years of data collection, I'm going to be really curious to kind of watch and see how this changes. Um, anecdotally, I have heard from grad students I work with that more of them are living in the urban core area of Lansing. They're filling in exactly what Bob was just talking about. They want to have that environment of being able to walk to places. There's some really great places on the market, or there's great, um, great places to rent. But this is, this is an area that I am personally very interested in watching. We almost have 700 students in, this, in the east side neighborhood alone. And again, I'm not going to make behavioral distinctions between an undergrad and a grad, but with the high density of graduate students, you can probably imagine that a lot of these people are going to be pretty good neighbors. So just something to think about um, as you work with clients or as you, um, as you think about where people are, where students are throughout the region and connecting there. Um, Jolly and Dunkel area, this is um, an area that based on the highway system, it's very easy for students to live, but it's certainly not walkable um, to campus by any means. So what we find is um, transportation in general, uh, you know, throughout the region is, is important. But um, this is something that graduate students that tend to have um, cars and want quick access to other things, this is an area that even though we have about a thousand students here, we do have a, a pretty nice density of graduate students. Um, so I raise all this. Um, again, please note two years of data is not enough to uh, do any trend analysis, and I just want to make sure I'm very clear on that. But I, I think it does provide a lot of questions uh, to be raised. And these are some of the ones that, when I was thinking about the audience in this room, um, when new housing developments enter the market, what's the regional impact? You know, what does it mean? Where do people move from one place? If MSU's not growing and other places in the region are, and that's fabulous, but if we're not growing, then um, what does that mean in terms of distribution of students? Is there a need for more regional-based conversation on student housing or housing in general? I'm in a lot of other uh, 
may have a spouse who may be um, may not be working in the area. Uh, they might be in a city spread very, very thin. And so if that's the case, uh, the newer developments that tend to be a higher price point are not, um, are, they cannot afford those, and they tend to go to other places that are much more affordable. That's why grad students are dispersed um, That's a nicer way of doing it than the king, so I appreciate that. Um, how do these conversations, how, how does this information inform conversations on mobility? Um, MSU has a pretty substantial mobility committee where we're looking at mobility internal to campus and then also coming through the campus and so forth, but mainly it's about um, mobility within campus. But even as I look at where our, um, our students are across campus, what does this mean about getting internships from campus to the capital? Bob and I have talked quite about this. Tim and I have talked a, quite about, a bit about this as well. What does it mean for them just getting around the region or other people in general getting around the region? So mobility comes into play. And then certainly, um, how does this information inform economic development across the region? So obviously, lots of other questions that I'm sure you have um, and so forth. But uh, know that this is something that we're looking to do, like I said, upwards to five years and then every other year after that. And hopefully we'll have a lot more analysis um, coming forward. Yeah. The question is, how much housing does Michigan State provide and does the trend, is the trend going higher or lower? Right now, we, we have the ability of about 17.5 to house 17.5 on campus. That would mean there are probably no singles. And there are reasons, um, a variety of reasons, why someone might actually need a single. Um, forget about the wanting a single, I'm actually talking about needing a single. Um, so, but I think our capacity is about 17.5, maybe a little bit higher. I am not aware of a, of a, of a T55 place that opened this fall, um, is fully leased. Leasing is happening for um, fall of 18 right now. And then Spartan Village is coming offline. Some of the buildings have been removed, and so it's really replacement housing at the moment. So, um, the question is, do we track faculty and staff in the overlay on the maps? Um, that is something that's on my list of wanting to do. Um, and so I'm going to use this as an excellent uh, jumping board and say that there's a, a larger interest from other students as well. So thank you for that. We're going to keep the uh, party going here. My name is Nicole Bomber, and I do all of the public relations and various communications activities for Tri-County Planning. What I'm going to talk to you about today is the 2045 Long Range Plan that he was just talking about for the region. It's formally titled the Moving Michigan Plan. So we actually have a whole website dedicated to it. Um, what he was saying about that nearly $6 billion is so important when we talk about connectivity and infrastructure. And in reality, when he talks about regional partnerships and participation, this is where it comes into play. Um, so it's a 25-year outlook on the transportation needs that we have as a region. Tri-County area, I'm sure you're all very familiar with by now. We're going to structure to mobility, connectivity, safety. That means anything from pedestrian bicycle trails all the way down to public transit. And then back over to pavement condition and even road congestion. That's also safety, freight, movement of goods and services, and how employers connect with day-to-day -day people. With that being said, we need your help to hear your voice. 
So this is something, whether it's you personally, your personal connections, your business partners, as regional partners, this is where we need to hear from you. That means any ideas that you have to improve the transportation system, we have so many ways to get involved. These kind of outline um, the general gist of it, but we have a public comment form that's available 24-7 on the website, movingmidmichigan.org, and we take all of those comments, no matter how many you submit, and we look at it and see how we can incorporate it into the plan, where feasible and where we're going to put these $6 billion of funds. We also have a survey if you go online, and if you take it and actually finish it and tell us what your priorities are for transportation in your region, you have the chance to win a $50 gift card. Um, it's all transportation related, so a gas card, I'm sure we could all use 50 bucks in our gas tank, all the way to a bus pass or a bike shop pass. Um, lastly, we have lots of in-person public participation events. Namely, last fall in November, we had a great public open house. We had interactive activities where um, participants could come in and say what their priorities are, where it, if it was their money, how they would want it to be spent. And it was also a, a great educational opportunity. Um, stay tuned on the website. There is an events pa page, and we are having a host of public forums hosted around the region later this year in early uh, fall, late summer. So stay tuned for that. I also have flyers, postcards, so anything you need for personal or professional use, feel free to come talk to me. I'll get that right to you. I just want to bring up Rachel Olsenga. She's our senior economic development planner, and she's going to talk about a little more specific project that we're working on. Okay. So we were talking about starts locally, and Mark and the team here, thank you so much for inviting us for this opportunity to share what some of the projects we're doing to sort of break down those barriers and so that we can together. We are doing um, some funding from Michigan Department of Transportation, some funds from them to address latent uh, transit needs for our region and this economic impact component. A lot of times, you know, we have Caddy here today to come talk next, which is wonderful. They are a regional transportation authority. And then you have the business community that says, oh, okay, well, we have this wonderful public transit service. of our region and how it's connected and infrastructure needs during the last 10, 20, 30 years, a lot are outside of downtown structures, downtown access, walkability. So what does it mean? It has a direct economic impact to our region. It impacts what we all do here together. And only by addressing these issues and having tougher conversations about reducing barriers to transportation and economic growth and opportunity can we make a difference for the region. So join us in a public participation probably in the next month or so. Hello, everyone. Whoa, okay. Sorry. Hello, everybody. My battery is completely flicker. Fabulous. Thank you. So, um, Association uh, Authority, which is the uh, regional transit provider, I'm here today to talk about a very recent project. Um, it has a lot of regional partners. So, it is a transit-oriented development design guidelines as well. Um, without these regional partners from Meridian Town, City of East Lansing, City of Lansing, Lansing Township as well. Um, what we're doing is we're previously been brought up, which is the Michigan Avenue and Grand River corridors that transcends our region. So what we'd really like to do is make this a denser, uh, more personable place with walking, biking, and of course, we're, pre we're building on previous visioning that has been done as well for this corridor. 
is the region that I'm talking about. So obviously we do all know Lansing. Um, several maps have been shown today as well to really focus on this as well. So this is a, a form-based code. And the difference between a form-based code and traditional zoning has a lot to do with what the building looks like versus traditional zoning, which often focuses on uses, commercial, residential, industrial. This actually focuses on what the building looks like, how it interacts with the street, and where it's going to be placed. So you can you walk up to it easily, or do you sort of have to play Frogger with cars as you walk across the parking lot? So here are just a couple of visual examples of what a form-based code would look like. So the traditional Wendy's that we've all been through, driven through, perhaps even walked through, again, you have to walk across parking lots, avoid lanes of traffic and the drive-throughs versus sort of the form-based code where, as a pedestrian, that you could actually get right up to the street. In addition to as well, being a pharmacy with the drive-through, you could walk across the street parking and asphalt, depending on the time of year, whether it was summer where that asphalt radiates heat or whether it was winter and you had to sort of shuffle very slowly to avoid the black ice versus the other CVS that um, is very, very close uh, to the sidewalk so you can actually just walk right up. It's more aesthetically pleasing. So this is another example where the uses are the same as well. So we've got two examples of Kroger and on the left as well, it's right up to the street. There is some parking out front, but it's more of a park once with your vehicle, go shopping, and then you can also uh, walk around as well versus the traditional use which has the building set back far from the street where when you look at it, even when you're driving by, you see a lot of parking out front and it is even as inviting. It's on um, literally the architectural standards, how big the windows are, how big the setback is from the door, um, to really try and encourage um, pedestrian friendly scale as well as transit friendly scale so you don't sort of have to do that, that long walk so these are some draft concepts. Um, as part of this study as well, we also have been looking at the different districts and what um, they mean to both community members who live. So um, you know anything from downtown uh, Lansing all the way through sort of the, the Frandor area. There was quite a bit of conversation because that's what most people uh, associate that area with. Here's again the rest of the district map. It's such a long corridor, it needs two maps um, to fit on a couple of slides. And uh, again, downtown East Lansing, all the way out to Meridian Township, uh, sort of the downtown area of study. What's been nice about this is that it has identified that this is an area that is ripe for redevelopment and increased density. They have higher than regional averages for the um, there's also a significant opportunity for uh, increased retail space. We are all aware of some of the strains on big box retail, retail in general, and moving towards e-commerce. However, this area is ripe for redevelopment and infill. Um, the zoning, it really helps not only um, communities, but it can also affect how to increase uh, developers 
there's some development um, right up to the street as well, but over time it could change. So again, that was uh, wouldn't be great if all development was that easy. Um, just press a button, but uh, but but it's not quite. So but um, press a button. As you can see, the uh, planting of street trees is getting mature um, in the street, and then eventually as well pedestrian bicycle friendly steps for the project. We're actually in the process of trying to get approvals for the form based code uh, for Meridian Township to Meridian Township and they're planning a uh, board to approve. Uh, East Lansing is just about in the process of approving their master plan so after they're done with that we will be taking this on to them as well and then the city of Lansing has a street design manual because they already have so we will the site as well as the Facebook page and a Twitter handle. So for everyone who's actively tweeting, um, this uh, dream team of speakers is uh, Tim Damon, President and CEO of Lansing Regional Chamber of Commerce. Please welcome Tim. Of anchoring is right. I'm just honored to be here with this great group of individuals, and I, I don't know that I speak for them, but I always enjoy this. This is an opportunity we get to kind of somewhat play economists. So this would be kind of talking about, you know, where we were in 2017, but projecting forward in 2018 and beyond. But before I do that, I want to thank uh, Megan Webb team here at uh, the Greater Lansing Association of Realtors for putting together the, the program today. We worked very closely with uh, the realtors in, in, uh, in 2017, and it's, uh, it's a new partnership. The realtors have been a member of the chamber probably, I think, close to like 65 years, so a long-time member. But I would say 2017 was probably the year that we worked uh, closest together furthering and continuing that partnership as, as well. And I think a, a word that I am probably going to use, you know, 10 minutes or so is optimism. And I think we see that throughout our membership. I think we're seeing that throughout the region here. I think we're seeing that throughout the state and throughout the country as, uh, as well. And, but before I go into that, uh, anchoring the program this morning, I can't figure out the clicker. How about that? A male that can't figure out the clicker for remote control. I want to spend just a couple minutes on our organization. So our organization has been around for 117 years, earning our 117th year, founded in 1901. And we were uh, recently recognized by the Michigan Association of Chamber Professionals, so our peers across the state, as a Chamber of the Year finalist. And uh, we, we achieved that finalist going through a process where our peers throughout the country uh, scored us on a criterion application and then submitted. So we were certainly honored to be one of three of the large urban metropolitan chambers that were recognized as a uh, finalist of the year. Uh, we're continuing to see great progress. We have an amazing, amazing team. I think that Steve Japping is here this morning from, from our team, but we have a tremendous team that's working uh, very hard on behalf of our members and business community here. Uh, again, in 2017, uh, our retention uh, levels for our membership top 90%. We were 93% in 2016. We finished 2017 just, just shy of 92%, so back-to-back -back years finishing in the top 10% of our chamber peers nationally, so something we're very, very proud of. Our membership is solid and continues to grow. We finished the year right around 1,100 members, and uh, we'll continue to see some growth and progress here. I think in the last two years, we've welcomed over 300 new members. So the support we're seeing from, from the small business community and businesses here in our region has been uh, phenomenal. And the thing, too, that we, we, we do a tremendous amount of these ribbon cuttings, and anyone that's been involved with ribbon cuttings, you, you know they can get very old, and you're, you're here and you're there, and you're 
cutting ribbon and he got small scissors. Well, we have two pair of the biggest scissors I've ever seen in my entire life. And those scissors in, in 2017 were busier than they ever have been. We did over 50 ribbon cuttings uh, throughout the region. That was recognizing new businesses that came into the region. It was recognizing members that were celebrating anniversaries or milestones. Maybe they were moving in a new location, maybe even groundbreakings, expansions and whatnot. But over 50 of those, totally more than $95 million in investment and close to 500 jobs throughout the region with all of those ribbon cuttings that we did. So just a significant, significant accomplishment, something we're very, uh, very proud of. We really look at ourselves as being a convener. We bring people together. We bring businesses together. We bring community leaders together. And again, in 2017, we had uh, probably close to 70 events and programs that we did uh, touching and connecting with close to, if not more than 8,000 members of those programs. And they range from our monthly economic club luncheons to our legislative roundtables, all the way to our member mixers and our annual dinner, which will be coming up here again in, uh, in February, uh, this uh, in, in another month or so. So I said optimism, and it's the word I'm going to continue to use. I'll use it several times, but as I was kind of preparing some of my remarks and putting together some thoughts for uh, today, just earlier this week, I saw this headline, and it just it, it, it captured my interest to see, wow, you think about this, the engine of the economy roared back to life. U.S. Small Business Conference at a record high in 2017. That's from a publication, Business Insider. It was just from two days ago, January 9th, 2018. And uh, again, it it captured it because we talk so much about small business. We talk so much about that impact. And it's been mentioned a couple times now, Michigan Avenue is the backbone of our region. Well, small business is the backbone of our economy. And when we look at that and the growth we continue to see and the stats and the data that says two out of every three new jobs created are created by small business, you got the entrepreneurial investment support you continue to see there. And um, when you look at some of the survey data that the U.S. Chamber's recently done, they said over uh, over two-thirds of, uh, of mid-tier, small to mid-tier sized businesses they surveyed throughout the country are projecting record revenue and profits for 2018. Another half of those are anticipating hiring more workers. And so and it's not just in that small and medium-sized businesses. I think it transfers over to manufacturing. The National Manufacturers Association just to release their survey results uh, here right at the beginning of the year as well. I think 95% of the, their members throughout the country, I think it's like 14,000 manufacturers that have been surveyed, were very optimistic about the next 12 months of the economy and what it brings. And as the U.S. Chamber President Tom Donahue said yesterday as he did his state of business uh, in America, he said, you know, what is the state of business? He said it, it's strong, but they're determined to get stronger. And so I just, again, I think that that optimism of where we are right now and we're continuing to see is going to bode well as we, uh, as we start the, the new year here. We look at some public policy, and, you know, again, the optimism that you go back a year, the business community had is kind of this uh, over-regulatory uh, climate, a lot, especially in D.C., and kind of overreaching in what a lot of uh, business folks said. I thought the anticipation was to see some progress there, and I think that we did with some tax reform. We'll talk about that here in a minute, but I think there was some disappointment in health care. We weren't able to see anything really get moved in D.C., around health care, and we continue to hear from our members, and one of their biggest challenges behind talent is controlling health care costs. And I can speak from experience with that. The Chamber, again, this year, uh, double-digit increases. And we've changed our health care program, I think, five years in a row now. Probably like many of you out there today, high-deductible HSA type of plans, and how long is that sustainable? And so I think that we need to continue to push for and strive for additional health care reform at the federal level. Uh, we, we saw it here recently with tax reform, and I think uh, instead of getting into a debate on tax reform, we'll leave it here. All of you out there can determine what and how it's going to impact all of you. But I will tell you that from a business standpoint, from our membership, they are thoroughly and we're overwhelmingly supportive of tax reform. And I think we saw that in the surveys when we talked to folks. They, they said what they were going to do was going to be reinvesting in their business. They were going to be re- 
investing in their people, wage increases, and capital improvements with the, with the businesses. So I think that anything to kind of continue to stimulate, keep the economy growing uh, is very critically, very important. We connected a number of our members with, uh, with our federal delegation. We held roundtables. We were part of uh, economic jobs tours that uh, Congressman Bishop and others had throughout the region. And again, I know we were very, uh, very, very active to understand it. And I think we have some things planned coming up here in the next couple, probably in the next 30 to 60 days as well, probably a business education uh, program to really kind of take a deeper dive and help folks better understand uh, you know, what the tax reform could mean. Jobs and economy. Development incentive package just passed through the state. Significant from the standpoint that, you know, seven years into the Schneider administration, it was really the first effort and attempt we saw to really kind of support economic development. Bob talked a lot about the projects and whatnot. It has been extremely challenging over the last seven to eight years, probably ten years, to do that from an incentive standpoint. So it's really kind of hoping to level the playing field with where we are with our competing states throughout the Great Lakes, throughout the country as well. We have really emptied that toolbox. And so to see those jobs, we've seen the jobs for Michigan package as well as the uh, My Thrive uh, Brownfield legislative package. Now, I think to date we haven't seen any activity with those incentive uh, packages yet. So I think in 2018 we need to continue to kind of push and strive to, uh, to get there. We saw late last year um, education package went through on career technical education and uh, bills were passed out of the House and Senate. I'm not sure if the governor signed those bills yet or not. If he hasn't, they certainly will be soon. But really, how do we reform that K-12 aspect of uh, career technical education? Talking uh, in between the break up here, we, we talked about the impact that the skilled labor uh, shortage is having on home building. And there's not the skilled labor there to do that. There's not the plumbers, there's not the framers, there's not the roofers. And so it's impacting all levels of our, uh, you know, of our economy and so forth. And so continuing to provide options for kids and letting them explore new career opportunities early on only going to benefit. Now that's a long-term solution, so there's a lot of things that need to happen in, in the short term as well with there. So legacy and OPEP cost, I know there are some local municipalities that are here today. They're they're dealing with these challenges, and it's, it's significant. I mean, it's an $18 billion issue throughout uh, the state right now. And uh, in the fourth quarter, actually in December, just before the holidays, the, the governor signed uh, a, an OPEP legacy cost, really, I think, providing a little bit more accountability for local governments and really trying to map out and really long-term trying to help them address these issues. I don't think it's really any secret that the state, going back over the last probably 12 to 15, 16 years, they've balanced their budget somewhat on the back of local governments. And so how do we continue to advocate and change for that? In the city of Lansing alone, they're dealing with over $600 million. It averages out to about $3,300 per resident that uh, voted expenses out there. So it's certainly a, a significant challenge and one that uh, we've been very active. And I know our members are very concerned about this as well, because for every dollar that there are many instances, they're putting 20 cents in every dollar towards these legacy and OPEP costs. That's 20 cents not going to infrastructure. It's 20 cents not going to public safety and other core services for, uh, for local governments. Uh, Coleman Road is a, is a road expansion that we've been very active in trying to work on over the, I think the city of East Lansing has been working on this over the last 20 years, and that's not a knock on the city of East Lansing. It's just been challenging to get the state to get interest in this. And so we were able to, I think, kind of move that uh, throughout 2017. We are anticipating and expecting that the $7.5 million item will be part of the 2018-19 budget. For those of you not familiar with Coleman Road, it's in the northern tier, and Janet mentioned that, of East Lansing. It would connect under 127 and connect over to Wood Road, and really kind of thinking about that financial tier that's out there with MSU, FCU, Greenstone Financial, Farm, our Greenstone Farm Credit Services, Mercantile Bank, and other businesses that continue to grow there off of Lake Lansing, and really 
helping with uh, with some of the congestion uh, along the Culver Road area as well. And then kind of looking ahead to 2018 ballot initiatives, there are a handful. I think there are five or six right now that, that look like they'll be on the ballot in 2018 at the state level, anything from recreational marijuana to prevailing wage to part-time legislature. So you're going to be inundated this year. So just prepare yourself on these ballot initiatives and what those are going to look like in 2018. Uh, drilling it down locally here, we're off of uh, just some very significant elections in the city of Lansing and East Lansing. The city of Lansing elected Mayor Mary Andy Shore took office in January 1. Again, the optimism level, I think, from uh, from city residents and from the business community throughout the region here uh, with Andy and, and his style and, and where and how he's going to continue to build upon the, uh, the great work of, of Mayor Monero over the last 12 years and the economic growth and development. And I think kind of furthering uh, some of the regional partnerships, I think, is where folks are, uh, are looking right now. We did some surveying and polling. This is where we talked about working with the Realtors Association last year. We were very instrumental, helpful in this. And, and both Lansing and East Lansing, I'm not sure how this works. Maybe we should ask our polling company we worked with. But 44% of residents in both Lansing and East Lansing felt that their cities were moving in the right direction. 30% felt that it was moving in the wrong direction. And then there was 25% there that were, were unsure. So are their numbers good? I'm not sure. I think I would probably want to see the right direction probably you know, over 50% or more. But we'll certainly that to you, I would probably be more concerned with 25% of the residents for someone kind of unsure on where, uh, you know, where things go. Uh, roads and infrastructure, jobs and economy at the top of the list in both, uh, in both the city of East Lansing and, uh, and Lansing. And so business and, uh, and residents get it right in the roads and infrastructure being top priorities uh, for, uh, for our region and, and communities to address. City budgets played up to the top in the city of East Lansing while public safety was in Lansing. So you can kind of see the differences there, but the top two roads and infrastructure, jobs and economy, uh, very, uh, very important. Uh, City of East Lansing had an income tax on the ballot in November. It was defeated by a 53-46 uh, margin. I would tell you our members, 85% of our members in the City of East Lansing were, were opposed to the income tax. And uh, there was an active group, uh, Citizens for East Lansing Future, that uh, ran a no campaign um, leading up to that November 7th uh, election. And now I think that the question is, is what's next? I know that East Lansing is going through um, some community forums right now, and I think really trying to identify what are those next steps and what, what are they doing in addressing some of the budget shortfalls. And, and they're, they're not alone. I think that there are, uh, there are a number of communities, as I mentioned, I think that with the legacy costs is something that East Lansing is dealing with, Lansing is as well, and throughout, uh, you know, throughout the region too. We'll certainly, you know, stay tuned because, I, you know, we would anticipate that there's going to be continued dialogue and will they revisit the income tax, will they revisit property tax increases as well, I think, remains to, uh, to be seen. Regional prosperity, and I would I, I would make a strong argument, and I, I could probably, I'm, I'm an infrastructure geek, I, I admit it, and Jim and I could probably sit up here and, and you guys would, you would fall asleep or you would just leave, but talking about infrastructure, but if there are three things that the Chamber looks at as we look at 2018 and beyond that are going to lead direct correlation to economic prosperity and growth, we really look at this as being talent without question, number one, infrastructure, municipal finance and so forth. So let's kind of take these one by one here with talent. Without question, the number one issue we hear from our members and their, the issues that they're dealing with are talent. And it's not unique to just this region. It's not unique to the state of Michigan. This is across the country. Everyone is talking about attracting talent. And I think it goes back to the, uh, and I'm drawing a blank on the author of the book, but Bob could probably help me, The Rise of the Creative Class. Richard, thank you. Thank you. So the whole premise and theory was that business is going to follow talent. And it wasn't dependent on cold weather climates. 
warm weather climates, east coast, west coast, midwest, it was going to be where are the people living? And here we are, we're living in Maui, and we see this day in and day out, and what and how uh, our regions like Lansing continuing to uh, do the things we need to do to attract talent. What are employers doing? How are they thinking differently, thinking out of the box? What is the state doing? We talked about the, you know, the, the CTE, the career technical education aspect of that. I know that Governor Schneider and the state of the state coming up here in a couple of weeks will probably be run rolling and unveiling a very comprehensive talent program. I think it was something that was really the framework of it was put together during the Amazon presentations back last year with the city of Detroit and some of the things that, uh, that they're doing there. Um, we've heard from a large employer here in this region, certainly not going to name names, but they talk about you know 25 jobs that they would have at a facility in Grand Rapids and 25 jobs they have here in Lansing, and they will fill the 25 jobs in Grand Rapids before they fill the one in Lansing. And so that's concerning. You know, what are we doing? What are we not doing right? And I think that goes back to that quality of life aspect, and Bob talks so much about that, and that is tall buildings at Michigan Avenue Corridor, the riverfront development. What are we doing here from a place standpoint that's attractive to people? And I think that's the role that all of us have up here, all of us in the room here today, you know, with the state government and with the employers, and there, there's long-term solutions. I talk, I look at the CTE piece of that, I look at that as a 20-year solution. That's going to take time to get those reforms through, but employers need jobs and people today, so we've got to look at this short-term, mid-term, and, and long-term, and what and how that, uh, that looks like. The infrastructure investment piece, uh, again, I think, uh, you know, Jim talked about the, the importance of infrastructure, and he talked about, you know, the $6 billion in projects, but another $6 billion or more of unfunded projects. You know, we're living that and seeing it now, and whether you drive down the MLK corridor or you drive down other corridor systems, our bridges, uh, they're, they're continuing to crumble. It's a serious, serious problem. I think the report a year ago said that we could spend $60 billion over the next 20 years in the state, and that would just be to maintain where we are. So that's not to actually invest and increase the, the infrastructure. Uh, but I travel around, as all of you do, around other parts of the state, we're seeing this infrastructure investment. We're seeing it in West Michigan. We're seeing it in Southwest Michigan. We're certainly seeing it in Southeast Michigan. We have to do a better job here continuing to advocate for that investment because it matters. Perception matters. And uh, when folks visit and they come through our region and they look at our bridges and then they drive to other parts of the, the state and other parts of the country and they see this investment uh, and what's happening there, so it certainly, uh, certainly matters. We have, uh, I think over the next five years, we have about $400 million in projects that lack complete full funding for roads. And that goes from anything from MLK to some of the other areas uh, throughout the region here. And if you go over to West Michigan, during that same time period, they have $400 million of fully funded projects. And so again, what are we doing and how are we municipal finance? And again, how do we continue to help uh, our local communities uh, address their uh, their OPEP and flex and retirement costs? So uh, economic investment, who doesn't want to start a year with a billion dollars worth of investment in your region? And people say, yeah, for a mid-tier market, a billion dollars, this is very, very significant. I would argue and say for any region in the state, any region in the country, a billion dollars of economic plan development more than that is very, very significant. Bob referenced the McLaren Hospital announcement. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's only the fifth new hospital in the state of Michigan to be built in the last 30 years. So this does not happen very often. It's very, very significant. The partnership with Michigan State University is significant on that as well. You look at the Lansing Board of Water and Light, the new Erickson Power Plant, and what they're continuing to invest in their infrastructure, right, in our energy infrastructure is critically important. Center City Project East Lansing, $120 million development. I will tell you that's going to be transformational and game-changing. Moved my son to Chicago, to Evanston last week for an internship that he has, and walking through 
what's on Evanston? Why do I walk past an urban target, exactly what we're going to have here in East Lansing? It's a game changer. It really, truly is. This whole form-based codes and transforming the avenue, walkability, it's all about that place. It's a game changer from a talent standpoint as well. Uh, so certainly celebrating that. And then Lansing City Hall, downtown hotel. I can't speak for Bob, but this would be my forecast and expectations is that I would anticipate and expect that you'll see an announcement sometime in 2018 on a new downtown hotel, and that's very, very, it's very much needed. I think we need to continue to do that as we look to not only, one, attract people to our region, but really support that convention and tourism industry as well. Uh, November of last year, our celebration of regional growth, we recognized five, uh, five businesses, uh, Eaton Rapids Medical Center, Gillespie Company, I think it was $117 million in investment from the five uh, companies here, more than 900 uh, new jobs that were the result of those, uh, those investments. It's our 12th year of, uh, of recognizing uh, you know, businesses that are committed and growing in our region. Uh, 65 businesses over that time period, $2.5 billion worth of, uh, of investment. So when we end this, I end this in saying, you know what, the region is performing very well. We have over the last decade. We'll continue to, uh, to grow, and we really kind of look at that projects that grab the attention, but when we go to communities from St. John's to Charlotte to Mason um, to Meridian Township to Delta Township, Delhi Township, you're seeing that growth and investment. Every one of those communities that I just mentioned there have had some type of significant announcements in economic development and growth and investment in the past 12 months in anticipating.